This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 24 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, President Cyril Ramaphosa lays down the post-lockdown rules. A 500-person clinical test on BCG vaccines is starting on Monday. 75,000 people have contributed more than 2.5 billion rand into the Solidarity Fund. Low but rapidly growing UIF disbursements. And a chilling end to this episode as an ICU doctor shares how she and colleagues are preparing for the possibility that one in five of them will die from the coronavirus when the infection wave hits South Africa. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says the country will take a cautious approach to its emergence from lockdown, announcing restrictions will be reduced from Level 5 to Level 4 on May the 1st. Here are the highlights of Thursday night's address to the nation. We have accordingly decided that beyond Thursday the 30th of April, we should begin a gradual and phased recovery of economic activity. We will implement what we call a risk-adjusted strategy through which we take a deliberate and cautious approach to the easing of current lockdown restrictions. As part of this approach, there will be five coronavirus levels. The first level is what we call level five, which means that drastic measures are required to contain the spread of the virus to save lives. Level four means that some activity can be allowed to resume subject to extreme precautions required to limit community transmission and outbreaks. Level three involves the easing of some restrictions including on work and social activities to address high risk of transmission. Level two involves the further easing of restrictions, but the maintenance of physical distancing and restrictions on some leisure and social activities to prevent a resurgence of the virus. Level one, means that most normal activity can resume with precautions and health guidelines followed at all times. To ensure that our response to the pandemic can be as precise and targeted as possible, there will be a national level and separate levels for each province, district and metro in the country. From the evidence we have, we know that 75% of confirmed coronavirus cases 
are found in our country in just six metro municipalities. And they are Johannesburg, Ekuruleni, Cape Town, Buffalo City, Eteguini, and Mangau. The National Coronavirus Command Council met earlier today and determined that the National Coronavirus Alert Level will be lowered from Level 5 to Level 4, with effect from Friday, the 1st of May. Some businesses will be allowed to resume operations under specific conditions. Every business will have to adhere to detailed health and safety protocols to protect their employees and workplace plans will have to be put in place to enable disease surveillance and prevent the spread of infection. All businesses that are permitted to resume operations will be required to do so in a phased manner. First, preparing the workplace for a return to operations, followed by the return of the workforce in batches of no more than one-third of their workforce. In some cases, a sector will not be able to return to full production during level four, while the risk of infection remains high. These will be spelled out next week following a final round of consultations. Businesses will be encouraged to adopt a work from home strategy where possible. All staff who can work remotely must be allowed to do so. We are calling on all South Africans to wear a face mask whenever you leave home. Our clothing and textile industry, including small businesses, are gearing up to produce these masks on a mass scale. This is a crucial moment in our struggle against the virus. It is a time for caution. It is also a time to act responsibly. But it is also a time for patience. Let us continue staying at home. Let us continue staying safe. And thank you for all that you have done and continue to do. May God continue to bless South Africa and continue to protect her people. Despite the lockdown, the long-feared exponential acceleration of South Africa's coronavirus deaths may have begun with the Department of Health announcing that by Thursday night, 75 people had died from the virus, 10 of them new, representing an increase of 15% on the day. Confirmed cases posted by far the biggest single day's increase at 318, or almost 9% to 3,853. The previous highest daily increase was 251 confirmed infections on April the 18th. The country's first four cases were reported on March the 9th. Feels like a world away, doesn't it? 
Worldometer.info confirmed that global infections are now just below 2.7 million, with deaths at over 188,000. On Monday, Stellenbosch University Professor Andreas Diakon will be launching a 500-person trial aimed to determine whether the BCG vaccines are indeed a shield against COVID-19. The trial involves the revaccination of BCG, which has been universally applied in South Africa since 1973. Numerous reports have pointed out a correlation between infection rates of countries where BCG is universally administered being far lower than in those countries like the USA, Italy and Belgium where it was never used. An interview with Dr. Diakon is coming up. The Solidarity Fund, launched last month in President Ramaphosa's State of Disaster address, today announced that it has received pledges worth 2.6 billion rand from 75,000 South Africans and around 1,000 businesses. In addition, 75 individuals have been seconded by 25 organizations and offer their services free of charge, as do the chairman and all the directors of the Solidarity Fund. The fund says it has already invested a billion rand in critical interventions, mainly procuring personal protective equipment for healthcare workers and dispersing food parcels to vulnerable people. More detail later in the episode. America's unemployed swelled by a further 4.4 million people last week, taking the job losses since the coronavirus hit to more than 26 million. And globally, economic activity collapsed with the IHS Market Purchases Managers Index for the U.S. dropping from 41 in March to 27 in April. That's its lowest since October 2009. Its European equivalent has plunged to a record low of 13 for an index where 50 is neutral. The oil price, however, continued to recover after the extraordinary events of the past few days, Brent crude rising 8% to $22 a barrel and the American benchmark WTI price was up 29% to $16.50. On the health side though, the collateral damage is now starting to come back into the spotlight. Today the World Health Organization warned that the global reallocation of resources to focus on the coronavirus could double malaria deaths to more than 750,000 this year. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Well, we're off to Stellenbosch now, and Professor Andreas Diakon uh, joins us. Uh, Prof, nice to have you on our Inside COVID program, particularly because of all the controversy that there's around BCG, or the TB vaccination that most South Africans get as children. Could you perhaps give us some insight into when this vaccination began in the country? Uh, in our country, in South Africa, I think it uh, began officially in the 70s, though people were given it from the 40s, but not in official policy-approved manner. So we will probably find patients or people with a scar that are older than they should be if it had been introduced in the 70s. But we know for sure that in the 70s there was a program that was rolled out countrywide. And what is it supposed to do? At the time when it was rolled out, it was believed that it would protect people significantly from tuberculosis. Now we know that it does protect 
young children from very severe forms of tuberculosis, but it loses its effect once people are adults. There is no difference in adult-type tuberculosis in people that have been vaccinated and people that haven't been. That's interesting. In, in South Africa, the, the view is at the moment, maybe this is going to be a shield. Maybe it's going to protect us against COVID-19. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's a generally held view. It has been an interesting observation that countries that used to have more, let's say, earlier and more active BCG vaccination policies in babies seem to be doing better now with the COVID epidemic. However, that is not an, an observation directly made on people. It's basically statistics that are correlated with the historical information about when this vaccination was given. I think it's good information, but it really needs to be verified that this vaccine can really protect people. There might be a lot of other factors, you know, that might explain this that we're not aware of. So it's time now, I think, to really create some evidence that being BCG vaccinated protects a person from this disease. You've no doubt seen Dr. Gonzalo Otazu's uh, correlative study. For a non-scientist now, when we see that, it, it seems to make a lot of sense. And I guess that's why it's got so much international coverage. But what you're saying to us is just be cautious at the moment. Yeah, I think uh, even the authors of this study are not entirely convinced that their observations are 100% valid. I mean, it's it's very clear that if all the data you have is policies in one country versus another country and how a disease behaves in one country and in another country, and all of us have traveled, there is a lot more differences between countries than just that. So this this might have to do with cultural things. It might have to do with genetics in the country, it might have to do with other factors in the healthcare system, you know, things that are impossible to control for. So where I think the data is very robust that, you know, in, in these countries something different is happening, we cannot conclude that the BCG vaccination is the cause of it until we have data that we can be sure that we have controlled for as much of these confounding factors as we can and that we can really promise a, uh, a protective effect of this vaccine. So how does one go about doing that? And it's a leading question because I know that's what you're trying to do right now. Yes, so this will be quite a lengthy answer. Um, ideally, you would go about vaccinating people that have never had this vaccine before. And you would probably then do uh, what we call a clinical trial, whereby you vaccinate, say, half of the people with the real vaccine and you vaccinate the other half of the people with something that looks like the real vaccine. And you don't even let the people who vaccinate them know what is in these vaccines. And then you follow up these people and you record what happens to them and you don't make any other disturbing activity around this. And then if, if after the study and everything has been observed, only then you check who has been vaccinated with a real vaccine and who hasn't been. And then if you can see a, a protection of the group that has been vaccinated, that would be very robust data proving that it actually works. So now the second part of the answer is that here in South Africa, obviously, as we started this interview, most people have been vaccinated when they were born. So what we are actually doing here trying to do exactly what I just told you 
is something that we call a revaccination or a booster vaccination. So we are assuming that after such a long time, I mean, in every healthcare worker in the country, this is 20 years ago that they've been vaccinated, the immune system might have become a bit forgetful about this vaccination and we want to revaccinate everybody with the same vaccine in the same manner that the babies are vaccinated just to refresh the immune system's memory about this vaccine and hope that that protective effect, if it's then there, can be, can be shown. Another advantage of doing this the way we do is that, you know, if a booster vaccination doesn't work, now given that the people probably have been vaccinated twice even, one can probably give up the idea of using this because if being vaccinated once at birth and then having a booster vaccination doesn't protect people then it's probably just an observation that was interesting but doesn't really help in clinical practice. How long will it take to do this whole trial? For us here in South Africa, we are at the start of the epidemic that we now assume will be with us for many months, perhaps years. Yet we have been trying to start this study as soon as possible. Our ethics committees and regulatory authorities have been wonderful in fast-tracking this for us. And we have been able to source the vaccines we need to start the trial. And I hope that next week on Monday we can start uh, vaccinating healthcare workers. And we are choosing healthcare workers because we believe that they will probably be in contact with that virus more than uh, other people would be. So if there is protection to be shown, it would be the most easily shown in healthcare workers that are at risk of exposure. So next Monday it begins. How long does it run for? Initially, we want to vaccinate 500 people. We are still looking for uh, additional funding to do more. It would be better if we could do more. Um, how long does it run? Well, we will start following up or observing people with phone calls or perhaps other than other, another digital platform. We're still setting that up, let's say, two weeks after vaccination, and then we will contact them monthly and we are setting up the statistics in such a way that a blinded person out there is given the data in an almost real-time manner and there is an independent committee helping that blinded statistician to figure out if there is a protection materializing over time and these people will have to decide if there really is something that we should actually stop this study and consider the point proven and then we could vaccinate everyone who had had the placebo vaccine with the real vaccination and recommend to people in charge, which in our case would be the healthcare administrators in the state and the city, to go and offer that vaccination to every healthcare worker that they have uh, in their employee. Well, this is dreaming a bit, but uh, we have set this study up in such a manner that if there is protection, we, we can know it as soon as we possibly can, and then we can make the information public so it can be rolled out. Prof, how easy has it been or how difficult has it been to get healthcare workers to enlist? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, another prompt, of course. Um, so far, we haven't started, so it's not we haven't actually enrolled anybody. But the interest has been great. And I must also say that the superintendents of the hospital have been great giving us access to this place so that we can advertise for it among the healthcare workers in this environment. It's obviously a voluntary uh, thing to participate or not. And we will have to leave it to everyone to decide for themselves if they want to do this. But I hope that we will be able to, in two or three weeks, we should be able to vaccinate these 500 people. 
and hopefully by that time they'll have a bit more funds and can vaccinate another 500. This would be absolutely great so that we can recommend this intervention if it then works in time, you know, to protect people from this COVID-19 virus as far as possible. And what stimulated your interest in this field? Well, I am personally a researcher into TB treatments and TB vaccinations. That's what I do. So it's my field. And when this COVID-19 crisis broke, obviously we were looking around what we could possibly help. And uh, I'm not the only one that had the idea of using this BCG vaccination. It's been floating out there for, for a while. But having a research team around that is currently not able, because of lockdown conditions as they are in South Africa, to do their research work out there in the communities as they used to be, I've decided to use all these free man hours to do this, uh, this study in healthcare workers that uh, as long as we keep to the 500, we can probably do without much additional cost because we're just using the man hours of our research workers that we're paying anyway. Uh, anyway, beyond that, uh, there would have to be additional people recruited and additional means somehow created. But we, we cross that bridge when, when we get there. I think at the moment, getting this uh, study off the ground is just very critical because if there is something in this BCG vaccination, we want to know as soon as possible. As a scientist, the last question is the most difficult one. What is your gut telling you about this? And I ask this because there must be sufficient feeling that, that it's worth going ahead with this. Otherwise, you would have perhaps looked at, at investing your time elsewhere. Yes. I mean, as a scientist, you won't do experiments, especially experiments on people, without having some degree of evidence that it might actually work. And it's it's the data that we have spoken about earlier, this observation about the countrywide differences uh, according to BCG vaccination policies. That is one thing. But there's also animal experiments. And there were other observations when BCG vaccination was used in in studies that were looking at other things, and one was just always observing that there seems to be some protection that this BCG vaccination provides that that is interesting, but it was just never interesting enough to look at before we had this epidemic. You know, it was one of these little blips out there that one makes a mental note of and thinks, okay, once I have a lot of time, I will start looking into BCG. And the moment that one has lots of time just never comes. But now it has. <laughs> and it's now the time to look at this. So it's it's not just a shot in the dark. I think there there's at least five pages in our protocol that uh, initially that can make a good case why one should try this and that it's not just putting people at risk, it's a minimal risk to have a vaccination for babies done in adults. But still, it's, it's an intervention. And uh, ethics committees have agreed that there is enough evidence to make this a worthwhile experiment and that we're not, you're not just experimenting around on guinea pigs. We're actually really having a, a very good case here that one should urgently figure out if that protection is actually material or not. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. The Solidarity Fund, launched last month by President Cyril Ramaphosa, has raised 2.6 billion rand. In a media webinar this morning, the fund announced 1.1 billion rand has been used for the procurement of equipment for healthcare frontline workers, while the fund is also helping alleviate a growing food crisis in the country. 
The 75 individuals involved in the Solidarity Fund are working pro bono. Linda van Tilburg reports. The contributions to the fund not only came from business. Many individual South Africans reached into their pockets during difficult economic circumstances to contribute to the fund. Today it was announced that a 12-member board had been appointed to administer the fund. And the interim chief executive officer is Nonkita Nkweni. PwC has been appointed as the external auditor and the health procurement is being managed by Business for South Africa. The chair of the fund, Gloria Sorobi, said in a media webinar this morning that the fund was a symbol of the enormous resilience of South Africans and she praised the individuals that contributed to the fund. We may be physically separated, but we can come together using technology to show we can live up to what we as South Africans have become known for, uh, finding unity in action. As you'll hear today, It is inspiring to see what a little bit of determination, optimism, collaboration and innovation can achieve in a very short space of time. A month to the day after President Ramaphosa announced the establishment of the fund on the 23rd of March, we are pleased to report that tens of thousands of individuals and companies have responded to his call for us to come together and mobilize in response to the virus. As of today, a total of 2.6 billion rands has been pledged uh, to the Solidarity Fund. This includes donations from companies, both big and small, foundations and charitable institutions. What is truly astonishing is that more than 75,000 individuals have reached into their pockets to assist those most impacted by COVID-19. And we thank each and every one of you. In the past four weeks, the fund has been registered as a PBO. An independent board has been set up and the mandate drawn up that the board is responsible for adhering to. We have worked with multiple stakeholders from civil society to traditional leaders government departments, organizations, to individual men and women, as we put in place the necessary systems and processes to respond rapidly to the unfolding situation. What we have achieved in the very short time frame is also thanks to the pro bono efforts of more than 75 individuals who have been deployed by 25 organizations or who have offered their services free of charge to help the fund fulfill its objectives. Most of the initial spending of the fund has gone to the procurement of personal protective equipment. The Solidarity Fund's focus in this context has been to support the government and broader national efforts to prepare our public and private healthcare systems for the increased burden that will result from the pandemic and to ensure that the critical equipment and emergency supplies that are required are available in the country when they're needed. We uh, have seen, and globally you'll be aware, that there's been a a significant shortage of PPE uh, for use by healthcare workers, and market prices have increased because the whole world has been competing for these items. They are mainly manufactured in China, and just as Europe and the U.S. were reaching the peaks of their epidemics, 
South Africa was starting to scale up. And so it was very critical that the Solidarity Fund was able to step in and, and work quickly to bring in uh, these much needed supplies as quickly as possible. We needed to make sure that our carefully targeted high impact procurement was in areas where government and other players were, um, were, were going to take action but were not yet ready to take action. And in other cases where um, certain products were simply outside the capacity of other entities to procure um, at, at very short notice. So we have been working very closely, as I say, with Business for South Africa. They are operating the procurement engine, um, if you like. Um, we've been working specifically on acquiring uh, PPE required by healthcare frontline workers, including gloves, masks, goggles, face shields, uh, respirators like the N95 masks, um, and various other items of equipment. It's been a very complex process. Firstly, these uh, products have uh, detailed technical specifications. You need different types of products for different kinds of healthcare workers, for example, community health workers uh, compared to uh, frontline workers in a hospital. Um, it needed a complex process of verifying and validating the suppliers as well as the quality of the equipment and, of course, importantly, uh, price negotiation. So an entire procurement engine has been built within the Business for South Africa stream, and the Solidarity Fund's been working very closely with that uh, to make sure that um, purchases are placed appropriately. Uh, in the first week, the fund approved 100 million rands worth of procurement, demonstrating a high speed of responsiveness. Since then, we've continued to move with agility and speed to procure additional equipment. Thus far, orders uh, to the value of 420 million rand have been placed. A further 192 million orders are being processed as we speak. To give you a bit of detail about what those orders are purchasing, in terms of personal protective equipment, um, about 21 million masks uh, have been purchased um, and hundreds of thousands of hand sanitizers, gowns, goggles, gloves, etc. as well. Some of these are already in the country. The rest will be arriving um, over the next one to three weeks, and then there'll be a continuous procurement cycle. All of these items have been rigorously checked for quality, and we're very confident um, that the quality will meet uh, true global standards. In addition, the fund has provided uh, funding to the National Health Laboratory Service, allowing the NHLS to purchase test kits for another 400,000 tests uh, to be done um, over the next weeks. That's also critical. And the fund has funded the procurement of 200 ventilators, um, which will be on their way to the country very soon. I'm also pleased to tell you that there's a very strong emphasis on local manufacturing. Um, the fund is working closely with Business for South Africa, the Department of Trade and Industry and Small Business Development supported by both the private sector and various higher education and science and technology units of government. Um, this is to uh, ramp up quickly the local manufacturing, both of low-tech items such as masks and gloves and gowns, but also high-tech items such as ventilators. And we're pleased that Danell and others are repurposing their manufacturing capabilities to be able to provide equipment like ventilators. The fund would obviously welcome 
reliable and sustainable domestic production of critical equipment given the huge global demand, and this could lead to a long-term sustainable industry emerging in our country. Of course, our primary objective at this stage is to secure the procurement of the most critical intervention as part of the fight against flattening the curve. We have been fortunate to have the benefit of learning from the experience of other countries ahead of us, uh, and this has informed our local responses. We believe that tracking and, and tracing and testing is a critical element, hence the importance of supporting our National Health Laboratory Service. Um, by acting as quickly as it has, we believe the Solidarity Fund has already and can continue to make a very positive difference in protecting frontline health workers, bringing in critical equipment, and shoring up our defenses in the coming months. The Solidarity Fund is also ramping up its efforts to help with the food crisis that is growing across all nine provinces. The lead of human interventions, Nicola Gambolic, said they wanted to ensure that food reached the right people rapidly. And the fund is also considering a system of food vouchers. Over the past few weeks, as a result of the lockdown, um, we've seen an escalation in the need for humanitarian assistance across all nine provinces, including remote areas. We've been overwhelmed by requests for assistance, and we know that these are extremely difficult times for South Africans. The fund has already taken swift action to inject immediate humanitarian relief in the form of food parcels for the most vulnerable communities across the country. Complementing and augmenting the work of government and others, uh, we set the task uh, for ourselves to provide emergency relief to over 250,000 distressed families during the lockdown in the month of April. Over the medium term, solutions will be, will be required that com uh, to come on stream that are more systemic, uh, both through additional government grants and sustainable food supply chains. But our goal uh, this month was to act rapidly as a rapid response vehicle at scale and to reach people facing severe food insecurity now to achieve national coverage and to be as inclusive as possible. To do this, uh, we are managing distribution in partnership with a wide collective of organizations. Around 25% will be done through uh, a partnership with the Department of uh, Social Development's Community Nutrition and Development Centers and their nine implementing agents. A further 50% through large national food distribution NGOs and the remainder through a range of CBOs at provincial and local level as well as private logistics companies. We have consulted with civil society coalitions throughout this process, like the SACC, the COVID-19 People's Coalition, SAWID, and the NEDLAC community sector, to identify community-based and faith-based organizations across the country and to reach vulnerable households across both urban and rural areas. We've made a deliberate effort to direct the organizations that we're distributing through to cover geographic areas and poor communities that are underserved and not covered by other interventions, and also to minimize overlaps with others that are doing food relief. Part of the exercise has involved identifying the most poverty-deprived local municipalities in the country and ensuring that as many of them as possible were covered by our intervention. The most important thing was to ensure that the food reaches the right people. The implementing partners have been selected through a four-phase process from an initial list of over 200, compiled from multiple sources. 
This process involved evaluating the NPOs against multiple criteria, including their ability to meet compliance requirements, geographic footprint and networks, a proven track record of food distribution, and a capacity to implement quickly. The fund, as has been said before today, is committed to full transparency and the highest governance standards. And these principles are being applied to all the partnerships that the fund is entering into. We have ensured uh, in in the contracting that all of the Solidarity Fund's uh, money has gone as far as is possible directly to the beneficiaries and not on intermediary distribution and overheads costs for organizations. We've implemented active daily monitoring measures to ensure efficient delivery and that the food reaches its intended beneficiaries. This is Linda van Tolberg for Biz News. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Well, it's nice to be talking with Gerard Papenfuss again. He's the Chief Executive of the National Employers Association of South Africa, or NIASA. Gerard, good to have you on the line. How are you holding up with the lockdown and COVID-19 crisis that we're going through? Very good, Alec. My days are flying past. I'm actually more busy now than in my normal working day prior to COVID-19. Well, that wouldn't surprise me because the amount of questions we are getting from employers is uh, significant. The main one at the moment is what is going on with UIF payments. Many employers are confused. They don't believe the numbers that the president trotted out in his most recent address to us. They say that there's only a fraction of that that's being paid. What's your experience? We've got a very wide reach into the market, even far beyond our membership. In other words, people that make use of our legal services. I think our reach into the market is six times our membership. And we've been monitoring the unfolding of the UIF thing from the beginning, and we've been advising employers every day and sometimes more than once a day. And initially, it was a huge confusion. The rules changed every day, and employers battled to submit their applications or claims. But I think that's much improved. And what we do now is we do a survey daily amongst employers, and we ask them that those that has claimed and got paid participate in the survey daily, as well as those that applied or claimed and hasn't been paid. And Our latest feedback is this morning, and we've published it uh, just a few minutes ago, that 30% of employers who's claimed has, in fact, been paid. That's quite Uh, impressive, Gerard, because the numbers Cosata is talking about is only 2%. The survey that we conducted this morning, and if I say this morning, the survey went out yesterday afternoon, and 8 o'clock this morning we stopped it. Over a 1,000 employers have participated, and that's quite a broad number in terms of a survey. Our figure is 30% on this thing, and that's improved. And I think the way we see it and what we hear, that's perhaps quite a reasonable reflection of what's happening. And I think, to a large extent, the problems have been sorted out. One of the problems that we do have is that the payment to the employer is supposed to be accompanied with a schedule of uh, the number list of employees that's been paid uh, uh, in respect of which payment is given and the amount. 
Now, that's lacking. Less than 1% of employers that do get paid get accompanying schedule. Now, that poses a bit of a problem for employees because now they need to work out. And on that basis, they're supposed to pay their employees. And if they don't have the schedule, they can do it accurately. But to some extent, we need to have sympathy. There was a point where I did not have so much of sympathy because I said, you've just got to get this right. Because if you don't, employees are not going to get paid. And if employees are not going to get paid, then the money won't reach the employees. They wouldn't be paid. And employers cannot within this time, many of them at least, can't pay employees in advance and then wait for the money too long. But as I said, I think there's much improvement and Our figure this morning went up from 5.5% three days ago to 17.8% to 30% this morning. What also can play a role is the enthusiasm with which employers participate in a survey. But we actually do very well. I'm impressed with the eagerness of employers to tell us what's happening. This is really good news, but it's still a long way from 100%. If you think there's still 70%, of employers who aren't being paid and presumably their staff are thinking that the business has been paid, so now why aren't these guys paying me? Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course, that's, uh, employers must stay in contact with their employees in this time. You know, I spoke to an employee yesterday and he was very impressed that his employer sent out a video telling them what's going to happen. Uh, that's a good thing, but it's quite late in the day. And it's a terrible thing for employees to sit there not knowing what's happening. So if an employer hasn't received money, then then say so. And if you do, then say so as well. And if you did receive money, but you haven't received a schedule and you don't know what to pay, then say that at least the money is there, but the uncertainty is really bothering. Niahasa has claimed for Niahasa itself and for one of the Niahasa affiliate companies, Niahasa Labor Compliance, and we received our money within days. Again, with no schedule, but if I look at the figure, I'd say, ah, that's more or less correct, and it really happened within days. But that's uh, also many employers are probably sitting on the side and saying, this is not working. I hear it's not working. And as a consequence, they might not even have bothered to put in their claims. We've heard reports that trying to get hold of the UIF is not an easy thing either. They don't seem to have call centers manned or adequately manned. What's your take on that? Well, I think it has improved. The lodging of the application isn't that simple. But we sit here in the city with accountants and your HR people, IT specialists, well, at least very well informed, and and they've struggled. So you can imagine a small business in a rural area where a guy is focused on other stuff, and now they have to submit a claim which our informed people struggled with, I think that might be a problem. And uh, there was a time where the UIF said you can lodge your claim by means of email. Now, nobody that did that got any response, and the UIF has changed that and said, unless you do it online, we're not going to in any way accommodate you. So I think from that point of view that there might be employers, good employers, in fact, that's thrown their hands in the air and say, there's simply no way that I can do this. I don't know how. And that might be the case. And it's not necessarily as a result of a bad attitude, 
but it is difficult. We battled, we got it right, and we got paid. So there might be employers that might struggle. I haven't had any feedback of employers that says, I'm not going to claim. Gerard, uh, how, how would you advise them? Can you take us through the process of a small business that, and I think it applies to businesses with uh, less than 100 million rand turnover per annum. You can correct me there. How do they start going through this process? Alec, I will advise, uh, and I will go that far to say to employers, if you're not equipped now to do that, get somebody that can assist you. And one might perhaps give the name of someone, and I might make an arrangement with an accountant to say, let's set up a hotline for this. And if somebody needs assistance, give them a special price. Do it for a thousand rands or something like that. Because it is just not possible to say to a guy, this is what you've got to do now, because you won't even know where to start if you don't have the systems ready to do that. Nihasa has got a helpline, and I'm not promoting Nihasa now. This is not what I'm saying, but people have used that and say, help us, take us through this. But again, it was not technical help. If you don't have the system at all to do that, I think you've got a problem. So you have to get professional assistance there, and I think what we need to do is to make an arrangement with somebody who sit ready and say, assist these employers. Make that call, because I understand that the whole scheme will close. It will close for applications or claims on the 30th of April. So we've got a week left for the claims to be lodged. Gerard uh, Papenfuss is the chief executive of NIASA, and some good news there to see that the percentages in three days have gone from 5% to 17%, and as he said a moment ago, to 30%. Uh, that hotline, the hotline number, and uh, he makes the point that uh, we'll call that number, it is manned, and they'll be able to at least point you in the right direction. That's 086 086016-3772. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. I love talking to the scientists, to the people on the front line. Well, it's not quite a front line yet because we haven't really had the tidal wave hit us of COVID-19 infections. And actually, I guess that's a great question to start with. Dr. Vespina Demopoulos is an intensivist. That means you work in, in ICU units. Why haven't we yet had this wave that so many people have been predicting? So we haven't had the wave yet. Well, the lockdown has tried to delay it. So the lockdown has helped allow us to prepare for prepare the hospital for the wave that's coming. But we, we haven't had it because we just delayed from where, where we are in the rest of the world. So the travel ban and all of that has helped with the delay. But we're getting there. We just started later than the rest of the world. So it's not like it's going to pass us by. So I think everybody hopes that, that that would be the case, but we don't feel that that's going to be the case. What we're hoping, what the best case scenario for us in South Africa would be, is, is that it comes, but we able, our healthcare system is able to handle it. So in other words, a lot of people are staying at home, so it gets staggered out, and we manage to have enough um, respirators, ventilators, ICU beds, and, and our system can handle it over a few months, instead of just having one wham-bam tsunami in a month's time with no, with not enough resources. Just putting ourselves, the non-scientists, the non-health professionals, in your shoes, you would presumably be looking at what happens or what has been happening in the rest of the world, given this delay that, that we've had. 
Are you worried, particularly as a healthcare worker, because we see that many health workers have, uh, elsewhere in the world have actually died of this disease? So, yes, very worried. And we sit with a, I sit with a group of a couple of intensivists around the country who have, and a lot of us have contacts overseas and so have had first-hand discussions and messages sent to us from our colleagues that are working in ICUs, which is quite scary. And we know, and discussions among senior colleagues know, 20% of us would probably die. And that's been the, the number in terms of Italy and in first world places. So our ultimate goal in South Africa is to not lose 20% of our healthcare workers. But yes, we are hearing from our colleagues that, yeah, 20% of us are, are probably going to die. That's chilling. One in five people. Mm. Wow. How come? Yeah. Is there no way you can protect yourself? So, we do hope that it won't be that bad, and, and I do believe, and a, a lot of my colleagues believe, that if we, if, if we are better in terms of the way we, we manage things, in other words, our PPE, so if we make sure that we really are on board with our PPE in terms of the donning and doffing, so very importantly when we take off our PPE, that we don't infect, and if we isolate ourselves and if we give ourselves enough time away so that in case we get sick, you know, we can be tested, we and learning from our colleagues from overseas, hopefully we'll be able to lower that statistic, you know, to 5 or 10% and not have it at the 20%. But we are in South Africa trying to be a bit more proactive. And I think we're lucky because we got it after our, our, our colleagues overseas and they might have been caught a bit more unawares, especially in Italy. So hopefully we'll be able to to be a bit more protected and have, have had time to prepare, which I think they haven't had the same amount of time that we have had to prepare. But, Doctor, that is, uh, has got all kinds of implications. Um, clearly, you, uh, many of the health workers in South Africa have got families, have got children. Uh, I guess you've got to prepare for the worst, even though you hope it doesn't happen. Yeah, so a lot of doctors we've had to put out, we've, and I've spoken to a couple of colleagues, they've put their will in order, so they've gotten their wills sorted out, try to sort out their policies, have had hefty discussions with families. So it is, it is quite a, a scary time, I think. There have been discussions in the hospitals that we work at, if, if the frontline staff, so if they're intensivists and the ED doctors, if, if we get ill and are unable to, then, then what is the backup? So we've called on other specialists, we've got backup specialists, but obviously they're not, they're not used to working in the ICU environment. So we have identified a couple of specialists that are prepared to help in, if the frontline you know, goes down. So we are trying, trying to think and, and there are, there are some documents going around saying that healthcare workers will, you know, will be guaranteed beds in an ICU, for instance, because if it becomes an absolute disaster, we're going to have to triage all those beds and, you know, follow some of the protocols that they do overseas deciding who gets the bed. So it is a scary time. I've got two young little boys. So I'm, I'm, I am obviously very scared in case something happens and I'm, I'm very particular and a lot of my colleagues are in terms of coming home from work, showering outside, not letting them have contact with you. It's quite difficult, but I think we're trying everything we can to, to, um, and trying to be healthy so that if we do get sick, can recover quickly. Is there something or is there a correlation between the amount of exposure to this virus and the mortality rate? Yeah. Yeah, so there is definitely, um, definitely the virulence and the viral load. So, 
So, so those doctors who died and those who who were exceptionally ill had much more exposure. So, in other words, when you're filled with your ICUs full of COVID patients, and all you do is COVID, the chances are much higher that you will get more sick. So, it's definitely related to the virulence and, and viral load. And in places that have had just, for instance, one or two patients in the ICU, dedicated staff just for that, they're not tired, they're careful, you know, that kind of thing, have definitely done better. What about older doctors and older health workers, given that this virus seems to prefer, well, the mortality rates there are higher? Yeah, so so we're trying to protect our older colleagues. So in some hospitals, some of the some hospitals have said no, no one over 60 will be involved in those patients, which is a, which is a tough thing because a lot of our very experienced colleagues are are over 60, but we we are trying to protect them from being in the front line. So so we will not call upon those anaesthetists or or those intensivists that are over 60 initially. The the 40 to 60 group, which is most of us at the moment, are, are planning to to handle that, and so we've actually not included them in our core rosters in, in many institutions that we're working to we're working at and we've also advised sort of older specialists to stop consulting and the time that you spend so if if you spend more time with COVID-19 patients then the chances are higher that you're going to be infected and badly infected are you working on shorter shifts say yeah so we are looking at shorter shifts at the moment, not because we haven't, we're not, we, it's, we're not seeing as many patients. What we've done now is we've just done shift work where minimum staff is going in, the rest, we're taking a week apart to make sure that we don't get ill. So we're not, we haven't cut down our hours yet at the moment. Just, we've just basically dedicated certain staff members to COVID wards and certain staff members to non-COVID wards for the moment. But the plan is that if when we do hit the disaster, that there will be limited time and probably eight-hour shifts versus 25, 24-hour shifts. And um, we have yet decided what we're going to do with our, our nursing staff at the moment. Just explain that, 24-hour shifts? So, so being on call, so depending on where you are, um, whether you be a junior doctor or a senior doctor, so, so a lot of the junior doctors have to be on the floor for 24 hours. A lot of the, the senior doctors will, will be a, on call for 24 hours, seven days a week, for instance. That's how we do our, our, our intensive care cover. So we're there for most of the day. We come in at night and do rounds, but we don't sleep there. So our junior doctors sleep there. But then we get called, obviously, if there's a sick patient, we're there. Or if there's an emergency, we're there. So we will, we will, uh, what we're planning on is when we are, when we hit the middle of this pandemic, the intensivists, the consultants like myself will probably be there much more than the junior doctors. And we're planning to put, basically we're going to put the most experienced staff to manage these patients and, and hoping that we decrease the risk and spread to all our, our healthcare workers. You say when we hit the, uh, the worst of the pandemic, what are the timings looking like? So it's a difficult question, and I think a lot of people are trying trying to predict it. So the medical field feels that we're probably going to only start hitting our peak in September. I think it's one of those things, Alec, where we we're just knowing more week by week. But if we if we kind of look at models, and our epidemiologists and statisticians have looked at models, you know, trying to compare what's happened overseas. They, they're thinking South Africa will peak around about um, September. What we, we are seeing, so all the hospitals are, well not all the hospitals, but many hospitals are seeing 
one or two patients here and there. Some hospitals have had patients in ICU, but there is no hospital that's got a full ICU full of COVID patients. So so at the moment, that's still okay. And and we've also been fortunate in, in terms of children because my primary speciality is pediatrics. So, so the kids haven't hit as hard, but in the last week, kids have started now being admitted to, to hospital. So we, we're getting there, sadly. But, Joe, we, uh, we think the peak where our ICUs are going to be full is probably September, and I really, I really hope that that's not the case. But, yeah, that's what the prediction is. Dr. Demopoulos, I spent a little time with a, an organization called Yabonga uh, who look after HIV-positive children in Kailicha, and it was, it was really very heartwarming. But I guess not so heartwarming is the fact that these are HIV-positive kids who would be presumably more at risk uh, to COVID-19. Uh, is that the case? Mm. So, yeah, so, so what the South African pediatricians and specialists are obviously concerned about is that we have the most TB and HIV in the world. So, so no one can really tell us throughout the world what's going to happen to these patients because they don't have the experience. So it's a little bit of uncharted territory for us right now. But yes, immunosuppressed patients are. So patients with HIV, TB, oncology patients, transplant patients, all those patients are, are at risk. So hopefully with our HIV, we're fortunate that a lot of patients are on antiretrovirals. So hopefully they are immune suppressed. And if they are immune suppressed, then they should theoretically be, if they don't have another infection, they should theoretically be the same as every other patient. This has been episode 24 of Inside COVID-19. Access every episode by subscribing on Spotify or iTunes or by downloading the BizNews podcast app in the Apple App Store. I'm Alec Hogg. Cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.